0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien, and this is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Eve Wirth about the welfare state generation, women, agency, and class in Britain since 1945. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, great to be here.
0: Uh, This is a wonderful book uh, for so, so many reasons, actually. Um, It's, you know, both a profoundly important um, history book. uh, It speaks to contemporary debates uh, around things like gender, around welfare states. It's got uh, a lot of of really kind of detailed information about debates on things like class and social mobility, but it's also a really important story or set of stories about a particular group of women. and, And I guess a kind of uh, a set of women's experiences more more generally and the place to start i think is is probably with the women um, and as you call them they're the kind of the welfare state generation um, what, what is this welfare state generation kind of who who are these women that your book is about
1: um yeah i suppose it's a big question but i think the main thing is these women are a group of women born in britain between the late 1930s and the early 1950s and in some sense they're like the argument of the book is that their experience has been shaped by the, the post-war expansion of the welfare state. So like, you know, the Labour victory in 1945 reshaped the welfare state and these women were children, like the first you know generation of children in Britain who grew up under the auspices of that expansion. Um, but it also kind of seeks to extend that analysis to think about the ways in which the ex- expanded welfare state continue to impact and influence these women's experience right up until retirement and to think about them as not only kind of receivers of welfare state services but also women who were educated in the welfare state employed in the welfare state and shaped the welfare state themselves Um, and so it really tries to track their whole life course from childhood right up until the 2010s in order to really get a sense of that long-term interaction of their experiences with the state
0: And it does that tracking with with a particular, I guess, kind of set of of methods, really. Um, And and you contrast this, you're not sort of like kind of critical, I suppose, of the the way history is usually done. But I think you you kind of contrast the way you do it with how um, other work has been done in this space. And it'd be interesting to hear about particularly things like the kind of oral history methods uh, that you've adopted in the book and and how that maybe kind of differs from uh, the usual or at least the existing literature
1: yeah I think I think it does make some methodological contributions to how we use oral history specifically I mean I think firstly um the way in which I approached the interviews was I literally wanted to interview women born in the mid-20th century and and just see what emerged from those life history interviews so I start the interviews with where were you born and we end with talking about retirement and we really follow that their experience and their trajectory in a quite individual way throughout their lives I really I sometimes think that when we're going out there to ask you know women about their lives we should not necessarily bring this particular hypothesis or a particular kind of very rigid set of questions because if I'm going to ask these people to give me their time then like I really really want to listen and I really want the analysis and historical understanding to kind of emerge from those interviews so the whole book is like the foundation of the whole book is this set of interviews and each argument that's made in the book emanates outwards and when I um began the interviews I didn't actually have the welfare state as a central theme and that just really genuinely emerged in discussion and conversation um, with the women and not only the welfare state but the kind of different meanings of the welfare state and experiences over time and and how that perhaps changed into the late 20th century and early 21st century so that's the first thing Um, and then secondly I I find that some oral history studies tend to interview older women about their lives or older people about their lives um, but then kind of cut off the analysis or, or really focus the analysis on this sense of like youth or young adulthood and that can be part of our sense of like well we need to rethink about the past so we need to only use the memories that are about some kind of past in some sense but I actually found that some of the things these women were saying about their later lives was just some of the most fascinating understudied um, ways of thinking about British past that could really influence the way we think specifically about what's happened in in Britain since the turn of the century and um, so I made a kind of conscious effort in order to make sure the analysis went right up into retirement and really took a you know using a life history interview in a genuinely life history way in the writing up.
0: I mean one thing that struck me about what you'd said there was the sense of how the welfare state was produced and experienced differently um and one of the kind of you know sort of uh key terms in, in the title is, is this term um class as well actually as, as agency being really important and, and i guess this starts really kind of straight away in the book because one of the things you do when you're talking about the early years of the welfare state in the post 45 period but also the early experiences of the women who uh, are sort of featured in the book or or, you know the kind of research participants for the book is how different things like housing and council housing were and how they were experienced how different things like the NHS uh, both you know in in terms of kind of um, shaping um, access to medicine um, in, in the early years but also kind of how classed the experiences were so maybe you could say a bit about I guess not so much the kind of early life experiences of the welfare state generation, but actually like where kind of inequality, where social class comes in to to differentiate these experiences.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very firmly in a tradition of like social historians now who are very, very interested in class. It had kind of disappeared a little bit in historical analysis um in the past few decades, but it's made a resurgence and I think it's like highly, highly significant. Um, and i think it's it's very significant in the post-war period i don't think there's any sense in my analysis that uh class difference is something that disappears you know in the post-war period that the welfare state somehow eliminates the significance of class and actually one thing that we find as historians is that class actually becomes highly highly salient in the post-war period um i mean we have of course the social the rise of the social sciences with the analysis of class very specifically but also just the way it's 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 just so interwoven with, with people's experiences in that period, and people are particularly aware of it. And there's a lot of language of class that that they that people use more naturally than perhaps people do now, and, and an understanding of themselves as classed. Um, so I think it. Def, I think in the NHS, um, it perhaps is class is significant, but perhaps less significant than it is in some of the other social services because it did it does have some aspiration to universality. Um, whereas even kind of council housing even in this expanding period of council housing that it was still you know council houses for some people and a kind of private property for others it was never people and people talk about going to school and suddenly realizing people own their houses or people have you know they don't live in high-rise council flats they live in these big um, you know houses with lawns and staircases that their parents own so that could be a jarring moment um for children as well like realizing not everybody lives in a council house but i think where it really 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 comes across is is in the education system the the 1994 the 1944 education act sorry um i think is the the most significant piece of um political legislation in the 20th century it creates um secondary education free for all and also creates the tripartite system where we have children taking the exam at 11 and then that defining kind of their educational experience almost for the rest of their lives whether they go into particularly grammar schools or they go into secondary modern and the, the pass rate differentiation between working-class children and middle-class children was, was so wide and there's been a lot of research done about interesting research about even the nature of the exam has a kind of a lot of un- undergirding middle-class assumptions that just made it much naturally easier for middle-class children to kind of that milieu and the kind of questions that were being asked is much more what you would expect from a middle-class home and middle-class assumptions than, than working-class children. And, you know, up to 80% of working-class children failed that exam and went to secondary modern schools. And as I say in the book that, you know, that could fracture families. And, you know, you could, I had one pair of twins, female twins who just had their 70th birthday party when I interviewed one of them and she'd passed and her sister had failed. And they'd literally fought about um, that that kind of divergent moment in their lives um, at their 70th birthday party because the sister who failed felt, um, you know, they started in the same class, but they've not ended in the same class because of that moment um, with this huge class divide and even working class children who went to grammar schools, they left earlier, they didn't sit as many qualifications. It perhaps didn't, you know, lead to a university trajectory in the ways that it did for middle class students. So the entire education system was was highly graded, highly classed, it was very streamed. Um, and so I don't think the education system was, was changed in a way that, you know, el- eliminated class differences either.
0: Yeah, and, and actually that kind of theme... Of I, I suppose the sort of limits of of the welfare state, or the you know the kind of limits of particular uh, reforms to really kind of transform um, inequality in Britain. It runs right right throughout the book, and and we see it kind of time and time again in, in lots of different ways. And, and sort of slightly later on in the book, you, you talk about the transition out of education and into either the kind of labour market directly, or actually in, into things like higher education and again you know certainly agency is is the key term but the the kind of self awareness of how the system functioned and you know these women's sort of experiences and understanding how the system functions really kind of like striking so i wonder if you could say a bit about things like experiences of entering the labor market and experiences of going to higher education
1: yeah um so once once these women left school i mean a lot of them left at 15 without sitting even their gcse sorry, o levels which then became GCSEs later um although the middle class um girls are much more likely to sit their a levels and go into um higher education and um, what we see is a lot of even working class girls who went to grammar schools entering the labor market directly from school and we see you know slight changes at that moment so I, you know i get a lot of women saying like my parents had decided because I went to grammar school, I was going to be a bank clerk. There's this big thing about a a bank clerk or kind of respectable white collar jobs. And actually one thing that the expansion of the welfare state did, which is not spoken about so much in the history, is that it also expanded white collar jobs that weren't professional because an expanded state needs a lot of administrative capacity. So things like local government or even within the NHS. So there were also other ways that women kind of entered contact with the welfare state in ways that we might not think in terms of administration and a lot of girls were encouraged to become teachers or nurses and I saw at this point the women I interviewed were not super keen on those those types of work they saw them as highly gendered but interestingly and I think we'll, we'll speak about it a bit some of them return to those modes of work later on um but initially yeah they go into the labor market but working class girls as primarily but what's interesting is even that it is there are slight changes and I think this is one way in which we need to think about the welfare state not just in terms of tangible things like education employment and services but also the kind of general, general intangible sense that it provides of some kind of sense of a, of a safety net and it encourages a little bit more risk so there are small things that happen when these women leave school like you know, they might hop between jobs that they don't like. So they get this banklet job, they find it boring, they leave, they might spend the summer working at Pontin's and, you know, leaving the family home and going to work for a few summers at Pontin's. Or they might m- marry the first boy they meet at a dance without worrying about the economics of that, like they might have had to in the interwar period. So we see these kind of small changes where women are just feeling like capable of just taking a little bit more risk, just feeling a little bit less cautious. And I think we need to think about the welfare state doing that as well in, in tangible sense. Um, yeah, and then we, we get middle class women entering university, but it was still not as common as it is as it was to be later on in the 20th century. And we, we still get a lot of women going to teacher training college, um, even middle class women. And the women that go to university you know even they find that it's very gendered that they are even women who went to kind of Oxford and Cambridge are still being told you'll probably you can become a teacher but you can become a secondary school teacher in a grammar school whereas if you went to teacher training college you could become a, a primary school teacher for example so it's still about the gradations within teaching for example rather than vastly opening up the opportunities that women have so women retain a sense of kind of gendered career path and that is often tied up with the expansion of the welfare state because what the welfare state does is provide a professionalisation of domesticity um, and it kind of moves some caring that was done in an unpaid sense from the private realm of the home to the public realm of the state and that's beneficial for women it's better for that to be professionalised but it's not yet a radical change in in the opportunities that women have in the labour market.
0: I mean you mentioned marriage a couple of times there And obviously, that's still crucial as well. And, you know, at various points um, in the post-war period, we see the transformation um, of women's work with regard to things like marriage bars and, you know, um, particularly in these kind of big uh, bureaucratic um, institutions that are core parts of the welfare state. And I guess this is, you know, a sort of crucial um, part, really, of the gendered story um, of the welfare state. Uh, and the welfare state generation so so what did marriage mean for these women
1: yeah when I asked them about kind of you know, give, think, did you think about giving up work on marriage or, or did you give up work on marriage? They always responded, no, that was my mother's generation. So so they see themselves generationally as, you know, it was their mothers who might give up when they married, but the space that these women are in is, if, if they're just thinking about giving up work, it would be when they had their first child. So we've already had a kind of shift from giving up work on marriage, either voluntarily or through marriage bars, to um, giving up work at least for a few years um, on having children. Um, and so they're definitely not planning on giving up when they get married. So in that sense, it's less of a kind of big shift in their experience when they get married. And I think what's interesting about marriage, I found is that all of them presume, all the women I interviewed presumed they were going to get married. And it wasn't this big question like, you know, who will I marry? When will I I get married? How will that work out? It was just natural. Like, I'll get married. I'll have kids. That's what I'll do. So, So there wasn't so much anxiety around that because it was perceived as natural, but but also on the other hand that kind of meant that it wasn't it It almost also wasn't as big an aspect of their of their trajectory and their narrative as I expected and um, precisely because you know they didn't have to worry about it so much as they did an interval period so they meet a guy they marry him and then they build a life together and I think they also had a lot of kind of verbal verbal support from husbands in terms of there was a lot of rhetoric about equality within these relationships even if ultimately you know the women did more domestic labor and looked after the children more there was there was some sense that that women you know should be going out to work you know there should be some flexibility in that regard there should be some the husband should support the women's decisions and and, and, and things that she wants to do and I think that there's also a lot of sense that women have their own class position outside of marriage so when they spoke about class when they spoke about mobility it was very often an I I I type discussion and it was very much related to their own education their own family history and employment so they don't see themselves in the way that perhaps sociologists or historians have seen them as part of a kind of a sub a s you know a secondary part within a couple and that's how the class is determined, they found they still saw themselves as an individual with experiences and ambitions and goals, even within that. And even when they thought that marriage was kind of an essential and natural part of their experience.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's striking uh you mentioned things like, like social mobility, you know, it's striking that into the nineteen seventies when there's this supposed kind of golden age of of social mobility that there is also at the same time a quite kind of individualized but also really kind of empowering moment um for the women you're interviewing in terms of thinking about their kind of career choices thinking about the options they had in in both actually personal and professional lives And, and sort of later on in the book you relate this but you kind of critically unpack this relationship with things like the women's liberation movement of the 70s and i suppose the question to kind of coalesce maybe um that story together is is why were the 70s kind of so significant what's like the um you know the story of the 1970s for the welfare state generation
1: yeah it's interesting you you kind of mentioned that the Particular importance of the nineteen seventies, and I think it's notable that it's the only period in the book that gets two chapters, so two parallel chapters, whereas the rest of the book is kind of chronological. Whereas those chapters are almost kind of almost parallel with each other and focus on the significance of the nineteen seventies. I think I think there's many ways in which it's it's highly significant. I think one way is that we get a huge secondary expansion of the welfare state in the late nineteen sixties under the Labour government that is very often neglected. Um, by historians, um, we think of the expansion of the welfare state as only post 1945, whereas actually there was another expansion in the late 1960s. And one of the reasons I call them the welfare state generation is because that expansion happens precisely at the time they're kind of in their 20s and 30s and still in the you know the labour market and deciding what they want to do in it and in work. So it's ve- it's very important to them, and 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 it's very particularly an expansion of. Uh, the education system again, so we get the introduction of polytechnics and we also, get, and so we get the introduction about that, but the binary um, nature of higher education. So we also get an expansion in traditional higher education institutions, but, but these new ones like polytechnics and also an expansion of places at further education colleges. And um, there's also like increased spending in like hospitals, social work, but we just get big capital spend that requires staff. Basically, right? so they just need staff. And, and and that coincides with what i kind of argue is a, a, per, a often a, a personal change in the way that these women view themselves um, and the abrahams is a is a um, floral historian who calls these type of moments epiphanic moments in the kind of narrative of the self so it's one of these moments and i think what happens is the they grow up they you know they come of age i think perhaps in a time when the temp the the temporality of historical change is very, it's very fast, the tempo is fast. So in the in the 50s and 60s, the way that they might have perceived what their life was going to be like when they were young girls, you know, it goes through a kind of transition or or, or change. And by the time they're, they're in their kind of late 20s or 30s, what they think is possible for themselves has shifted. And part of that is to do with the welfare state because what the welfare state does is it provides, they said, like a kind of intangible... Um, safety net and a sense of value you know you're one of the first generation of girls who's received a, a guaranteed free secondary education you've you know you had the nhs so we, you know we know things like maternal care or the care of girls is much better in the nhs you might have, you know you're up in a council house your school might have spoken to you as if you would you would be in work even if you got married so all of these kind of things come together to a sense of this generation in the 70s that actually maybe i don't want to give up work after my um, first child or, or maybe this marriage that I made in a haste in my early 20s isn't right for me and and maybe I don't want to be a secretary maybe I want to have a kind of semi-professional career and this this kind of happens at the same time it occurs at the same time as this expansion of the welfare state where it's very possible for women to go back and, and re-enter education if they didn't get qualifications perhaps um, there were less you know, hoops to jump through to return to education uh, there was also they were often these new institutions situated in, um, in kind of in, in localities where people live and or you could do correspondence courses or part time courses. And then when you left that training, you could go and be a social worker or a nurse or a, or a teacher and have some sense of that you would progress quite fast in that career because staff is required so much. Or you might even become one of the women that goes and then teaches in the further education colleges or teaches in the polytechnics and has a real a really big impact on that kind of radical moment of, of, of further and higher education in, in the late 70s. So these two changes occur at the same time. Uh, and then what also is happening is that there is second wave feminism. But as a historian, I think sometimes we ask, you know, we think about second wave feminism in slightly the wrong way because I always get asked about these women, so I always get asked, oh, so have they changed their mind about who they are and what they want because of second-wave feminism? And I'm like, well, it's not exactly like that because actually who do you think creates second-wave feminism? Where do you think that comes from? And it actually comes from women of this generation. And so I actually think second-wave feminism is also an expression of the type of historical and personal change these women have experienced in large part as a result of the welfare state in the post-war period as much as it is a cause of the ways in which women see themselves differently.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. I mean, that that story of the intertwining or, or the kind of intersection, the inseparability of changes in the welfare state and changes in the experiences and, and the kind of consciousness um, of, of women um, during the later part of the 20th century uh, becomes really sort of apparent when we think about um, how their jobs were deprofessionalized how you know I, I suppose often we think of this period as, as to do with you know reductions in funding and, and stuff like this but, but actually you're more interested I suppose in the kinds of reduction of autonomy transformations in the kind of technical management of of the welfare state as much as its kind of funding regimes and and how i suppose did, did women kind of lose out in these new regimes or you know for some of them it was a, a mode of adapting others it was things like early retirement exit from the labor market or you know career changes um or just actually having quite a bad time at work which kind of comes through in some of the stories yeah. so yeah what, what was the impact at the end of 20th century
1: yeah i think i think the big shift that happens in the late the late thatcher governments is important because what it does again is it it's another way in which the welfare state is shifted and has a huge impact on this generation of women so they've gone through waves of expansion and then they go through the kind of this, this moment of contraction and um, and so it kind of remains this really important framework and structure of their experience but the way in which that is shipped across their lives and um, I think So what happens is from this kind of particular, this expansion of the welfare state in the um, 70s is that you have a lot more women of this generation moving into working for the state and also moving up within that. So it's a mode of social mobility as well for for these women. And I think what happens is this, the kind of late 1980s becomes a a flashpoint of perhaps what we could consider downward mobility for these women. So they feel like suddenly these, these roles that were professional, and a kind of career experiences. what they then become is is spaces where there's a lot of surveillance you know they, they lose autonomy so you get teachers saying things like you know the national curriculum comes in which in some ways can be good but then the way in which that is how tightly controlled that becomes and the amount of paperwork that brings with it and the lack of flexibility to do the kinds of things that these women think are important um you know shaping and and lessons to individual students and bringing questions of kind of gender and race and equality into the classroom is shut down quite substantially and we see this as well with you know social workers as well talked a lot about um you know the reduction in autonomy and just the 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 shift the the balance changed between the amount of time across these welfare professions that you were able to spend with students or or clients or patients and it becomes radically rebalanced to be spending a lot of time doing what they call like you know box ticking exercises like forms of de-skilling where before you might have had a secretary doing that job you then have Staff having to spend a lot of time filling out forms and getting everything checked and double checked by managers and managers just surveilling time in a way that just was not the case earlier, earlier in the century. And some women find themselves that, you know, they get made redundant because of the funding squeeze or organisations get restructured along the lines of increasing the power of managers and management of itself in itself being considered a skill or separate from you know if it's social work or if it's teaching or, or if it's you know being a doctor it's management becomes the cachet the skill in itself so these organizations become changed to, to, and restructured in ways that reduce the power of the people on the front line and increase managers and you tend to find women at the front line and, and men as managers so when that power balance shifts that can be particularly difficult for, for women staff working in the welfare state and a lot of women i interviewed you know they were they were quite traumatized by this moment and you know they really did see it as particularly if they had mobility from working class origins into into the middle class through these roles the 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 loss of conditions the reduction in conditions and sometimes the losing the job was really perceived as a moment of of downward mobility and it's it's also an interesting moment because we have a sense of because they grew up they're the first generation that grows up during the welfare state they really see the welfare state as something that will endure not as something ephemeral something that's that's almost timeless and and that's actually interesting because that's one of the reasons the welfare state is so central to second wave feminism in terms of they actually highly criticize the welfare state second wave feminists but it's partly because they believe it's possible to criticize like it's not in danger you know you're not in danger of losing it It just it needs to be reformed it needs to be better but actually by the late 20th century feminists become quite cautious about criticizing the welfare state because they're so concerned about the fact that it is actually going to become ephemeral like it's not this this kind of permanent feature of british life like they thought it was so they're also it really clashes with their sense of what they thought was the centre of British society and politics, which is the welfare state. So it's it's quite hard for them in their working lives, but it also shakes something at their core of their being about, you know, what is the welfare state going to continue and and does it define society in the way that I I thought it always would?
0: How does this manifest uh, in? sort of old age retirement the transition away from work you know to be essentially kind of um entering a very different bit of the welfare state in terms of um, social support in in old age whilst having kind of come through it um your entire life how how does that play out and and i I guess kind of um what was the sense of of sort of um agency because we talked Mm -hmm. quite a lot about that um, as women um, move into a, a very different part of the welfare regime.
1: Yeah, I think I think agency is key. I think it's particularly key in that 1970s moment, because when women work in the state during that moment, they actually have a lot of autonomy and agency to shape the state, to kind of shape the ways in which they interact with people the ways in which things are structured admissions procedures and curriculums and, and all these type things and and they use the language of that calling it doing politics through work so that is the way the agency manifests perhaps in work particularly in the 70s but some of that sense of agency and the ability to ability to shape welfare continues into retirement so a lot of women that i interviewed who formally retired or would say oh I'm retired oh I still work part-time as this for this institution or I still do this I still do this you know they're still very much in shaping the ways in which welfare is provided and they're particularly doing that because they have the expertise but a lot of that needs to be voluntary because of the fact that especially since 2010 there's been so many cuts to welfare provision that it's actually often the women who were once doing this as paid employment are now doing it in a voluntary capacity in older age so they're they're fulfilling an important gap but that's quite interesting for them because I think they would prefer that was provided by the state but they also don't want those things to disappear and they have this expertise that they can continue to use and so they very much are at the forefront of welfare provision still but I think also just the sense that they are they become a generation of women who are who are defined in a lot of ways through paid employment so, so when we thought about retirement previously there's been a, a historiographical argument that men and women experience retirement very differently because it's much harder for men because they're used to being defined by their work and then when they have to transition to not working it's very difficult for their sense of self but for women it's fine because they're not that attached to the labor market it's not that different they actually prefer it And, and i very very much did not find that i actually think that this generation of women is is experiencing retirement much more in, in the male understanding of it and finding it very difficult to transition to retirement and partly because they don't want to lose the status of work and and that's another way in which they still to continue engage in the public sphere through welfare provision because they don't want to lose this they don't want to just go back into the home and you know be grandmothers and be that and not be having a voice and agency in the public sphere is very important to them in the way that it's always been important and um, for men when they retire and i really that's one of the, the things i really wanted to contribute with this book is i really didn't want this kind of sense of women have a much easier retirement than men it's it's, it's very different it, and i just i just did not find that some of the most emotional moments i had in the interviews was discussing retirement and you know a woman cried or you have a sense of i just one woman could not articulate the words of herself being retired she kept saying i'm self-employed i'm self-employed um and so, I and I do think that women finding it very difficult to retire is actually one of the things that's defining the twenty first century, and it's not something that we're talking about or, or thinking about in relation to, um, in terms of history, or and, and not so much sociologically either. Um, and but and they do find themselves in other ways part of the welfare state. So, you know, they have pensions. Um, it's very, it's a very particular way in which all women um, experience the welfare state in retirement but those pensions are still significantly lower than than they are for their male counterparts. This generation of women have benefited from improvements to to women's pensions and have been, as I argue in the book, at the forefront of making those changes, arguing for those changes politically. But there's still a huge gap and and some of these women are, you know, still struggling economically in retirement and and finding that very difficult to to negotiate in relation to a 21st century where you are expected to, there to be a high rate of economic transmission from um, parents to children, um, and that's that's quite hard if you're a working class woman who perhaps experienced downward mobility in the late 20th century and doesn't have a great pension and perhaps didn't buy your own house or, or only has your own house as an asset, um, and and that's becoming increasingly like a, a pressure on this generation that some of these women don't feel able to
0: fulfil. I mean, it, it strikes me that you said a couple of things that that prompt. Uh, some reflections on, on sort of possible future research. Really, what one is the kind of, I guess, the sort of richness of, of the data, and particularly the emotional moments of trying to convey uh, life stories and life histories, but within a you know historical and, and sociological framework. But but also some you know kind of possible uh, comparative work, and then you know future lines of of research around things like you know intergenerational wealth transmission and it seems almost kind of like you know sort of a bit perverse to be like and you know what are you now going to do now writing this book because it is as i say such a, a rich and, and fascinating and, and you know sort of well uh, developed text but where do you go next with it is it a matter of you know kind of finding new lines of research from this project or are you going to be moving on to something completely different
1: um, I'm doing a few things some things which build on this and then some things which are related to this but, but not directly um, moving on from it so that one of the first things I've been doing is I've been interviewing um, women born in the 1970s and primarily socially mobile women because I'm very interested in social and social comes through quite strongly in, in, in the book and it's become something I'm very interested in. And if we think about women born in the 1970s, in some sense, what they are is kind of the daughter generation to this generation. Most of these women had their children in the 70s. So I'm very interested in thinking like cross generationally and what's that different experience and what does the influence of the welfare state generation's particular experience have on their daughters? And, you know, interesting things are coming out of that and things that perhaps I didn't expect. And I one of the early findings is that I'm finding gender is very very intense for the younger generation perhaps more so even than older women and perhaps because their expectations of what was possible for women were raised by their mothers and by you know growing up in that late 20th century like you know feminists achieved everything we needed to achieve kind of moment and actually when they find out that's not the case it's actually very jarring for them and very difficult so surprisingly you know gender is perhaps more intense than the younger women so i'm, I'm thinking kind of generationally and, and historically specifically in relation to women's experiences in the in the post-war period and um, because we know very little about that in terms of class and gender and mobility and so that's kind of the first thing i'm doing almost a, a re- research project about the the daughter generation to this um and then more broadly i've been um thinking about working on a project related to elite women and and very specifically women who experienced um very long-range um occupational success so you know really into the upper echelons of professions and, and public life and i've been interviewing those women born you know, roughly the same age as these women, and some a little bit younger, born in the late fifties and sixties. And thinking about during this moment that I talked about earlier, like a, a moment of extreme, you know, extremely high tempo of change for women. You know, what does it mean, and how was it possible for women to be these pioneers in the very, very upper echelons of of, of these occupations? And some of the women that I'm thinking about come from elite backgrounds, and some have social mobility into those spaces. So, whereas what this book does and and the project about the daughter generation does is really trying to think about the commonalities of experiences of women. The elite project is more thinking about, you know, what, what, what kind of, what unites this very particular class of women, you know, what's the mechanisms that make that possible and perhaps the mechanisms of closure as well. So they're they're kind of interrelated, but, but not exactly the same.
0: And and more books perhaps?
1: Perhaps. (laughs) <laughs> Let's see. um I, I did actually. It, it's a, it's a, it's very hard to write a book, but it's very very satisfying when it's finished. So hopefully, when I've had a little bit of rest after this one, yes, another one on on more generations and experiences of women.